Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. You've probably heard this before, but what did the uh, what did the Zen Buddhist say to the hot dog guy? I don't know. Make me one with everything. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from author and greatest Jeopardy contestant of all time, Ken Jennings. That'll help break the ice. We'll be speaking with him later. Also coming up, actor Jamie Foxx, star of the movie Django Unchained, which comes out on DVD this week. Plus, superstar hip-hop duo Macklemore and Ryan Lewis suggest tunes to play at your holiday party. And if you're wondering why we're talking about the holidays, that's because this is an encore rebroadcast of a show that first aired in December. It's a great one. So we're giving you the gift of hearing it again. You are welcome. So cast your mind back to a time of sugar plums and dreidels when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. In the fiscal cliff negotiations, we're close to a deal, but progress appears to have stalled. Robert Bork, one of the most famous conservatives, has died at the age of 85. South Korea has its first female president ever. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by L.A. Times columnist Pat Morrison. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm talking about monkeys who don't have a beat. This is a study. (laughs) Why did you say it like that? I'm serious. Monkeys can't follow a beat. Our closest relatives in the animal kingdom. Really? Who learned of this and why do they care? Researchers at the University of Amsterdam and at the National Autonomous University of Mexico had too much time on their hands. Apparently. And maybe too much grant money. And as a consequence, they hooked up these two rhesus monkeys to see whether or not they could follow a beat, especially when the beat was dropped. Because you've you've seen rock concert audiences when the person on stage will say, okay, you guys, you sing now. Yeah, and the music stops. And he holds out the microphone and we all sing lamely along. A monkey cannot do that. A monkey can't follow without the beat being right there. I was trying to think of, in popular culture, monkeys that have figured in popular cultures playing instruments, but it's true. They, they never have. No, no, well, no. no, no, that's not true. The monkey with cymbals is very popular. Oh, that's true. The and the organ grinder monkey. The organ grinding monkey. They didn't have an organ grinder cat. They had an organ grinder monkey who looked pretty musical to uh, me. That is true. I think they just picked two unrhythmic monkeys. <laughs> I think I think that's it. It was too small a sampling. They're in Amsterdam. What are they doing there? <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's true. Maybe the reason they can't keep a beat is they're a little, you know what I'm saying? That could be the case. Oh, that's what they went to Amsterdam for? They not only can't keep a beat, they have a hard time concentrating on simple (laughs) tasks. They giggle a lot. And desperately looking for cheetos, (laughs) like the entire population of Colorado right now. There are beings that are not very closely related to us, but closer actually to the dinosaurs who can keep a beat. There's a cockatoo named Snowball who was so popular on YouTube for being able to keep up with the Backstreet Boys and keep that rhythm going and even do little rocket kicks. Wait, is it hard to keep up with the Backstreet Boys? (laughs) I just want to see a band with a cockatiel drummer and a monkey frontman. (laughs) Right. Pat Morrison, thanks for the small talk. A pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a sprinkler, misting your lawn with booze. That's a terrible sprinkler. Hmm. Uh, First, the history part. This week, back in 1862, Ulysses S. Grant, Major General of the Union Army, issued his infamous General Order No. 11. Now, most folks at your dinner party won't know what it was. Here's Michelle Philippi with the story. The Union Army helped free the slaves, but for a while, they persecuted another minority, Jews. And just like slavery, it was all because of cotton. 
The North needed it, the South had it. So even though they were, you know, at war, Abe Lincoln okayed some cotton trading with the enemy. He put Grant in charge of regulating trade with three southern states. Grant's problem? The area was crawling with cotton speculators, always begging him for cotton licenses. If they didn't get one, they'd just bribe union officials and trade without a license. Most of these black marketeers were Gentiles, but rumors abounded they were mostly Jews. And after Grant met some Jewish traders he thought seemed shady, he fired off General Order Number 11. It ordered every Jew in the area to pack up and leave. Longtime Jewish residents got just 24 hours to hit the road. Some had to walk 40 miles to evacuate. And when Honest Abe got word of what went down, he had his commander general send Grant an urgent telegram. Sir, a paper purporting to be general orders issued by you has been presented here. It expels all Jews from your department. If such an order has been issued, it will be immediately revoked. It was. In fact, eventually, Grant publicly apologized for the order. And when he became president a few years later, he appointed more Jews to public office than any president before. So that's the history. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Edward Winfield. He's the bartender at the old Seelbach Bar in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. So, Edward, you've heard the history. What cocktail does it inspire you to make? Uh, well, I went with some of the combined ingredients from the South as well as ingredients from the North. I combined an ounce of bourbon, obviously very southern, very Kentucky, with uh, an ounce of applejack or apple brandy, which I know is popular up in the north, especially around Boston, and a little, probably three-quarters ounce of sugar or honey if it's available, and then just topped with uh, hot water. So it's a good, hot, revitalizing kind of drink. You know, if you don't mind me saying, Edward, you have a really strange Kentucky accent. Yes. It's, uh, it's the weirdest combination ever. It's Northern England and Kentucky mix. I moved here from England in 94, been here ever since. So. What, was the, uh, what was the biggest change for you when you moved here? I would say just the, just the mix of different people here. You know, I mean, I went to high school in England. It was all white and, you know, all pretty much the same. And then coming here, you know, more diverse population. So it sounds like the Civil War worked out after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enrico, Grant continued to reach out to the Jewish community. It wasn't just those political appointments. Really? In 1876, he attended a three-hour Orthodox dedication service for a synagogue in Washington, D.C., and it was the first time a sitting president had ever been to a synagogue service. What? Mazel Tov, Ulysses. Those three fun words. Probably fun to say. Weren't they fun? They were. Never (laughs) said them before. Folks, we have lots of fun drink recipes at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is visual effects artist Joe Letteri. He's won four Oscars for his groundbreaking effects work on films like Avatar, The Lord of the Rings, and King Kong. You can see his latest work, The Hobbit, in theaters now. Here he is to share a list and tell us about his own most precious achievement. Hi, I'm Joe Letteri. I'm the senior visual effects supervisor at Weta Digital. You know, The Hobbit holds a special place for me because we really got to revisit one of my favorite characters, which was Gollum. And I got to really look back on how characters get created in this digital age. 
So here's my list of three special effects characters that kind of led the whole revolution in digital characters in film. The first character is from the film Young Sherlock Holmes. Young Sherlock Holmes was re released in 1985, produced by Steven Spielberg and directed by Barry Levinson. Simply put, it was about Sherlock Holmes on his first case when he was a young man. Hello, is anybody there? There's a scene in which the priest is having an hallucination and watches the knight in the stained glass window come alive, jump down the window, and start to stalk him. And the reason I bring that one up is it is the very first time that computer graphics were used in a film to create a character of any sort. One of the reasons the stained glass man worked is he pops off of a piece of glass and he's built out of geometric planes. And so one of the things that's actually very cool about him is you see him approaching the priest who's having this hallucination. And as the camera arcs around him, you actually see the stained glass man from the back. If it was a character that could have been puppeteered, if it was a solid character, I'm sure they would have done that. But the fact that it was made out of all these glass plates meant there was no place to hide the armature, no place to hide the puppeteers. So if that's really the effect that you wanted, computer graphics becomes really the only way you can do it. The number two character that I think really opened the doors to, to what you could do with computer graphics was the water pseudopod in the abyss, directed by James Cameron. The Abyss is about a team of underwater explorers that encounter an alien civilization and in order to communicate, the aliens kind of take the shape of, of a human face on a water tentacle. It's trying to communicate. <laughs> it is difficult to make something natural like water or smoke or fire appear real on screen. What's more striking than that, though, is to take something natural, like a tentacle water, and animate it in a believable fashion so that it looks like it's inhabited by a creature that's actually directing its movements. That is not something you see every day. <laughs> it's wonderful. So my third character would be Terminator 2. Here we had a Terminator who was made out of molten metal, and he could transform himself into anything. I think one of the strongest moments in that film is when the Terminator rises out of that tiled floor and just forms up. That just gives you the feeling that he could be anywhere. You know, that, that dread that you have, especially as a kid, that nightmare feeling where things could come out of the wall. This was it exactly. And I remember seeing that and just completely being blown away watching him rise out of the floor and form himself. Back then, doing a single shot like that was, was a breakthrough and took, you know, months and months of, of people's time and, and lots of computer power to get that going. At the time, if I remember right, it was maybe about uh, 20 or 24 people working on that film for about a year. But just to give you a comparison, when we finished The Hobbit, we had about a thousand people working on it. The reason why it takes more and more artists and more and more computing power and more and more effort to make these films is that the ideas get bigger. You're not bound now by what you could do technically, in fact, quite the opposite. Looking back at these three characters, for me, this all led up to the development of Gollum and the Two Towers. And what really brought that home for us, the missing piece, was finding a great actor like Andy Serkis to work with to really drive the character's performance and to put the heart and soul into the character. Thanks.
One of the first shots where I really knew this was going to work was when Gollum was alone in the Forbidden Pool and he had pulled out a fish and he was slapping it on the rock to, to try to kill it so he could eat it. And he was singing a song as he was doing it and Andy just made up the song. So we could take now this, this combination of a fantastic performance and understanding how to make things look real and deliver a performance that as an audience member hopefully transports you into the film. The guest list from special effects whiz Joe Letary of Weta Digital and uh, Brendan, Joe told us a little bit about the next film. It is of course largely about the evil dragon Smaug. Mm-hmm. as opposed to smog, which is the dragon we have to face here in L.A. So uh, on Joe's to-do list is to use computers to create hyper-detailed, terrifying, emotionally engaging dragons. Yeah, That's and meanwhile, easy. I can't remember my Amazon password, <laughs> which is why I'm in radio. That's right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, coming up, Jamie Foxx talks about playing Quentin Tarantino's Django and also table tennis. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. This is an encore rebroadcast of a show that first aired last December. Coming up, Jeopardy! genius Ken Jennings answers our listeners' etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, it's actor and musician Jamie Foxx. He got his start on the sketch comedy show In Living Color. He went on to star in films like The Football Flick, Any Given Sunday, and the Ray Charles biopic, Ray. He got an Oscar for that one. Nice. We spoke to him about his starring role in the Quentin Tarantino Western Django Unchained. It won a couple Oscars and comes out on DVD this week. In it, Jamie plays a freed slave searching for his wife. When we met, he said it wasn't an easy part to slip into. The hardest part for me was when Quentin Tarantino came in and said, you got to be a slave and stop messing around. And I looked at my Louis bag and my Range Rover King and I was like... What you saying? Because I worked my whole life to get to where I am right now, and I'm not afraid of nobody. I challenge anything. I'm equal. And he said, that's the problem. He said, you have to go back in order for Django to have a full arc. We know where he's, where he's destined to be, but we got to go back. So that was tough, to, not, to act like I can't read, to act like I'm, I'm less than or, or, or afraid. That was hard. But... It was necessary so that people could see his evolution. That helped balance out the... Yeah, and and not only that, but the cowboy aspect of like that was the part that really got me. Like, man, I'm going to be on a horse with the guns, and I get to come in and, you know, sort of be the Clint Easton, you know, because if it wasn't that, I mean, why are you doing it? But did it give you pause to work with Quentin Tarantino, someone who's known for using extreme language, um, you know, some, there's been criticism for the use of the N-word in this movie already, someone who uses extreme violence, especially about a subject that's so sensitive. First of all, look, everybody, if you're black, of course you're going to be nervous that the black community, you know, is not mad at you. But we're all smart. And I think Quentin Tarantino was a genius in the way this movie lands, especially with the entertainment value of it. It's like, because you didn't expect that. I know when I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, I ain't supposed to be laughing at this. And watching them with an all-black audience, they laughed. Uh, they were upset about certain things, too, because they're supposed to be. I, and that's when black people ask me, well, the, the word made me mad. I said, it's supposed to. You ain't supposed to like it. 
You're supposed to be mad at that. You're supposed to be mad that it was used a hundred times, but know this, it was used a million times at that time to label us. And so therein lies the education. Well, while I was watching it, it occurred to me that the antebellum South is maybe the one place where Tarantino's over-the-top violence and language appeared realistic. Yeah, I mean, and that was the thing. If Quentin Tarantino did something like Yentl, you'd be like, what? What is... What, what just happened? I think Inglorious Bastards was his Yentl, actually. Um, but speaking of other movies, I just rewatched Ray, where you portray Ray Charles. And I was wondering, as an actor, is it harder to mimic someone and then act like you did in Ray or to create someone from whole cloth like in Django? I think uh, it's, it's harder to prepare for someone like Django where you don't have a reference point. Ray Charles, hey, you know what, maybe I... It, it, there's a reference point to Ray Charles. When you're doing Django, I watched Clint Eastwood. I watched the original Django. I watched Denzel in Soldier Story and Glory. I watched Wesley Snipes in uh, New Jack City to sort of build this guy. And then the fact that he is quiet helps because when it's too talky, you, you, there's more ch- chances of being derailed. And then the actual physical love is like, didn't you hear him tell you I ain't no slave? The physical thing is lower register, really, really serious, sincere, meaning that when you see Django, you know he's lived a thousand lives and he's died a thousand and one times and he's still around. So that's what I wanted to bring, like that, you know, that type of character. And now you can go wherever you want to go with him. I would call the man who had me kill another man in front of his son and he didn't bat an eye. Remember that? I remember what you said was was that this is my world and in my world you gotta get dirty so that's what I'm doing I'm getting dirty so between Ray and Django and all these other characters you've played in various films is there one that really speaks to you that is Jamie Foxx oh Any Given Sunday that was me more me because I was more like I was the, I was a guy who wanted to be I wanted to play sports like in a professional, but I just my legs were too small and my calf I didn't have any calf muscles and But you still threw for a thousand yards in high school. Yeah, in high school I threw for a thousand yards, which was cool, but I was still tiny. So I think any given Sunday was the one where I had the most fun, where it's like, okay, I get a chance to go out, live my dream, playing a professional guy and, and all these great things and there was music and it was it was just fun. It was Miami, I'm driving Hummers, I'm being gaudy, I'm losing all my money. It's crazy. It sure beats freezing cold Wyoming where you shot Django. You know it. <laughs> All right. Well, we have two standard questions on our show. And the first one is, if I'm sitting next to you at a dinner party, what question should I not ask you? What question are you tired of being asked? There's nothing. No, you can ask anything. I used to be like that with when I was on A Living Color and I was playing this girl named Wanda. And it was tough because that's all I did. And so dudes walk up to me, hey, Wanda, man, what's up, man? You really like dudes? Hey, 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 easy, easy. So, but now... You welcome it because it's like, you know, you, you don't know how long you're going to be doing this anyway. So, and it only takes two minutes out of your life. Okay. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. It can be about you or about the world at large. Uh, my ping pong game is very strong. Are, are you kidding? My table tennis is very strong. Uh, Susan Sarandon has this, uh, this club called Spin. And so every Tuesday I will go down to, I think it's the, the Mondrian Hotel in L.A., and you walk in this place, and over to the left, so when you walk in, it's all these 
tables behind curtains and some of the most incredible uh, ping pong players there. So How did you get turned on to ping pong? Uh, my father. I played tennis in, in high school, and my father was played tennis. So we played father-son tennis team, but the way we honed in a little bit on our craft is playing uh, table tennis to work on our, our reflexes because it was, you know, a little bit quicker than tennis. So you were a quarterback in high school, and you used that on any given Sunday. You were a pianist. You were Ray Charles. So do we see a ping pong movie in your future? Uh, pong. Jamie Foxx. Where I actually, um, I have to go to China, and my fingers have been broken. And I have to, uh, I've been I've been tend to by a, a family there, and they, you know, my hand gets mended, and then the next thing you know, they find out this miraculous paddle, which is stuck in, a, in stone, and, and no one can pull it out. And I pulled the paddle out. I see another Academy Award in your future. It, there it is, yeah, Oscar Mayer. Man, I really want to see Quentin Tarantino's Pong. <laughs> Definitely. I'm in mine already. <laughs> but Rico, here's some Jamie Foxx trivia for you. Jamie's real name is Eric Bishop. Really? Okay, yeah. He actually changed his name when he became a stand-up. Wow. The Fox part comes from Red Fox, one of his favorite comedians. Of course. And he says he picked Jamie when he realized that women comics got the best time slots at clubs. Mm. So he went with a unisex name, hence Jamie. Amazing. It's yeah. interesting because uh, I actually kept Rico Galliano because I enjoy hearing telemarketers mutilate it every day. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you kept that. And now, time to eavesdrop. Lynn Rosetto Casper does a splendid job hosting Public Radio's other food-centric show, The Splendid Table. But there was a time when she hadn't honed her hosting skills. Today we overhear her tell the tale. Hi, I'm Lynn Rosetto Casper, and I'm the host of The Splendid Table. And at this time of year, I get really nostalgic. And I was thinking back to those firsts that you have at the holidays. And what I was remembering was the first months that I was with my soon-to-be husband and the first party we gave. Now, you have to understand, he had this little apartment with a kitchen that was non-existent. Typical New York kitchen. I mean, there was literally like six inches of counter space, and I had a rolling typewriter table that I put dishes on to drain them. Okay. A stove that is the size of a placemat, and the broiler is on the floor. You know, it's way down on the floor. And I would race home from work every night ahead of him, change into a full-length negligee, and then I would proceed to cook dinner. Now, invariably, there was something broiled, you know, which meant flame. And invariably, my negligee hem would catch fire. And invariably, I would very calmly flip on the water, put it in the sink, you know, drain it off. And I would swirl with a martini to meet him at the door. But here was the thing, though. Christmas time, 1969, was our first holiday together, and we were going to give a party. And I have to say, we, without realizing it, sidestepped every piece of party wisdom out there. First of all, we invited everybody that we liked, assuming they would all like each other. What we had not counted on was most of these people were introverts. We had not learned the tricks of how you introduce people to get them talking to each other. You know, we just sort of said, this is Elliot and George, and everybody have a good time. So everybody is sitting around in this little apartment, mumbling at each other. They don't know what to say. They're bored to tears. This was the first mistake. The other mistake that we made was, we made it about us. 
Most of these people would have much preferred a can of beer, but Frank had started collecting wine. So he's pulling out all these Bordeaux and whatever, and everybody's trying to be polite, but it's like, oh my God, when can I get out of here and get a beer? The next problem was I had just started cooking Chinese food and I thought it would be wonderful to do sort of a feast. You do not cook on a stove that's the size of a placemat four stir-fry dishes at the same time. It is a physical impossibility. Oh, and the other thing that was so wonderful was I choose to make spare ribs in black bean sauce. Now, these are fermented black beans, and when they cook, they smell like old socks. So the fragrance in this small apartment was wonderful. And to add to it, there was this fabulous Sichuan dish where you took a huge handful of very hot chilies and you fried it in oil. So you had old socks and you had people tearing up because of the burning chilies. I'm so busy concentrating on the food, I'm not paying any attention to the guests. The food is impossible to eat on your lap because, of course, we had very few places you could sit. It got so bad, I kept wishing, I wish I were a guest here because I could get a headache and go home. Frank didn't cry. I did after it was over. (laughs) But... It never happened again. (laughs) We learned a lot of lessons. (laughs) And those people remained our friends, which was really very kind on their part and very thoughtful. The things that you never forget are usually not the things that go super well. They're sometimes a total disaster. I mean, I have to confess, I've been telling this story most of my life, and I'll never forget it. Lynn Rosetta Casper hosts the James Beard Award-winning radio show The Splendid Table. It's heard around the country and at splendidtable.org. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Brendan, I predict there will be a lot of Brazil in the future. Okay. In 2014, they host the World Cup. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, the Olympics in Brazil. Very nice of them. They have such a nice place. They're very gracious hosts. <laughs> Meanwhile, the food world consensus seems to be Brazilian cuisine is also going to be the next big thing. Okay. Uh, both Gourmet Magazine and the Trend Forecasters Technomic predict we will be seeing more Brazilian dishes and restaurants in 2013. So the other day, I went to the Brazilian buffet Pampas Grill in L.A. Manager and catering chief Daniel Valoria told me the place is named after a specific region of the country. Pampas is a very large region in Brazil, and uh, think of it as the flatlands in the USA, proper for farming and cattling, growing cattle. So there's a lot of meat in this cuisine. That's what the Pampas is about, the meats. This is no cuisine for vegetarians, you say? Oh, well, I wouldn't say so because there's a lot of also, you know, farming. I would say vegetarians would survive there too. There's rice and beans still going on. There's rice and beans, plenty of rice and beans. But the focus is on the meat, specifically barbecued meat is a lot of what you guys do. Grill, I would say grilled, grilled meats. Now there's a lot of cuisines that do that kind of thing. You know, Korean cuisine has become very popular because of Korean barbecue. What makes Brazilian barbecue different than other kind of barbecues or grills? Well, first of all, the mesquite charcoal. Mesquite? Yeah. Then you have the machine that we use, it's a, a rotisserie, but it's horizontal. So the juices of the meat, as it sweats, the juices on drip. They stay on the surface of the meat, so as it spins, the water evaporates and the flavor stays. So sort of like uh, what we see with Middle Eastern kebabs. There you go, yes. And the third one would be the slow cooking. This machine spins slowly, 
And uh, there's another technique, which is where they cook ribs. And that takes like about 24 hours to cook a, a rack of ribs. Do you do that here? We don't, we don't have the capability to do it here but hopefully in the future for the next restaurants. Hopefully for the customers, but not for the chefs who have to stay up for 24 hours monitoring ribs. Well, you can, we can figure that out. <laughs> All right, so this is, this is the pompous region, so meat-forward kind of cuisine. How does that differ from maybe other regions of Brazil? Are there other regions that are you know, more about vegetables or less about meat? Well, I would say, yeah, that, like for example, if you go to the Northeast, you have uh, this region, Bahia Fortaleza, and they cook more with seafood. Because I see, you know, this is a buffet-style thing, and one of the things that you can get are, are pastas. Where did pastas come into Brazilian cuisine? Well, actually, in the south, in the Pampas area, I mean, immigration in Brazil started in 1498, right, when the discovery. And so Italians and, and, uh, and German went to, to the south of Brazil and settled down there. So you're going to find uh, many more things than, than just what's available in, in Brazil. Do you, is, is the pasta done in a sort of especially Brazilian way, or is it literally like the stuff you'd get in Italy? I, th I think the pasta is more like the traditional global way, but then you have the pizza. In Brazil, the pizza is very, very specific. They load it up a lot with um, lots of ingredients, cheese, and it's thicker crust. It's not as thin like in Italy or something. So it's more like Chicago. More like Chicago style, something like that, yeah. I don't, who knows, maybe Brazilians moved up to Chicago and started deep dish pizza. And that might be. I'm pretty sure that's not true, but we'll pretend for the time being. We have a plate of stuff here that looks amazing. Which of these items do you think I should taste first? Well, when I think about a Brazilian plate, I, I thought, well, rice and beans has to be there. So I would suggest you go for rice and beans. And then I think the potato salad is a must. See, potato salad, I just would not think of that as a South American dish. There you go. Does that come from the European tradition? I think so. I mean, it has to. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try the rice and beans. Hold on a moment. Oh. It's delicious and really garlicky. Yeah, garlic is uh, the main ingredient, I would say, in this kitchen. Tons of garlic, yes. Then once uh, you pass the, uh, the rice and beans, then you have to talk about picanha. Picanha comes from the top sirloin. It's a cap of the top sirloin, so it's very available. Top sirloin. Yeah, it's very, very tender. What do, you, what do you do to this stuff? What makes it awesome? This is just, I mean, you have to cut it in a special way, and then uh, you just, we just put rock salt in it and put it to spin the machine in the, in the churrasqueira, in the uh, grill. So that, the only spice here is salt? That's it. All right, here we go. Oh, wow. That is delicious and tender. The thing, I can already see why Brazilian food is like catching on, because it, it's interesting that you mentioned some of the things, mesquite, right. sirloin, it's very, it's Texan kind of. There you go, yeah. All right, uh, one more thing. I, I, I see over here, these are cheese buns, and I understand that these are kind of like the classic snack food of Brazil. Yeah, uh, cheese bread, Brazilians say that the best cheese bread comes from a place called Minas Gerais. It's above Sao Paulo, so but the, one of the owners here, he is from there, so that's something where we put a lot of effort every day, making sure it's right. He's, he's representing his hometown, yeah, baby. Yes, yeah. All right, let's see if he does it proud, because if I don't like this, then this is going out to the nation. Oh my God, that is excellent. It's really crunchy on the outside, and the cheese is sort of mixed in with the dough, but it's also somewhat hollow inside. That is, how do you prepare that? Well, it's a, it's a flour prepared with, uh, with yoga flour, so that's also good for people who need to eat gluten-free. This is a gluten-free item? Gluten-free bread, yeah. This is like the best gluten-free thing I've ever <laughs> eaten. It's made out of yucca. yucca. So yucca is a root that's similar to potato. Uh, what kind of cheese? It, ha it has cheese from Brazil. It's white cheese. It's, it, it's not available in the USA. And then we enrich it with more cheese, eggs, and, and milk, and then 
we just make the dough and bake it to perfection. <laughs> what could be bad? What could be? What? How can you go wrong? Yeah. Uh, well, unless you're lactose intolerant. There you go. Well. And Brendan, I wasn't exaggerating there. I could not believe that that cheese bread is gluten-free. It's delicious. And it sounds way better than my strategy of simply using cheese as bread, Ooh. which is messy, but yeah. also gluten-free. That's true. Doesn't work for peanut butter and jelly. No. Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, etiquette tips from Jeopardy genius Ken Jennings and a party playlist from hip-hop stars Macklemore and Ryan Lewis when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll get some song suggestions from Mac Lamore and Ryan Lewis, the hip-hop duo behind the hit song Thrift Shop. Yeah. And we learn to think like a certain fictional detective. Hint, get a double-billed thinking cap. And a lackey. There you go. But now it is time for some etiquette. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Ken Jennings. Back in June 2004, he appeared on the TV game show Jeopardy. He won that day, and he kept winning every day for the next five months or so. He answered over 2,500 questions correctly and won 2.52 million bucks. That is a U.S. game show record. But lest you think he just bought an island somewhere and played video games for the rest of his life like I would, yeah. he has since written a number of best-selling books. The latest, Because I Said So, just came out. And Ken, how are you doing? And could you please phrase your answer in the form of a question? No, I am. Uh, I do not do that for less than you know. <laughs> I was going to say I, I only do that for Trebek money, you guys. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> wow. I'm the Linda Evangelista of game show contestants. <laughs> you've never, you've never heard that one, have you? Ken? Yeah. No, nobody in radio thinks that would be funny. You guys are the first. So good. Thanks. Job. We pride ourselves on that. The book. Linda Evangelista, <laughs> by the way, famously said, "I don't wake up for less than a hundred thousand dollars." For those who don't know, uh, the book subtitle, Ken, is "The Truths Behind the Myths, Tales, and Warnings Every Generation Passes Down to Its Kids." What inspired myth-busting as a topic for you? Uh, having kids and I, so. <laughs> uh, I guess two things. Having kids and then being OCD enough to not like to be asked questions I don't know the answer to. Because, oh. you know, kids <laughs> ask you more questions than Alex Trebek ever could, you know. It's, but they don't have the mustache. So. <laughs> well, in, in many cases, that is true. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I would just find myself telling my kids, don't do that. That's dangerous. And they'd be like, really? Why? And I'd, I would have no idea. Because grandma told me that in 1981. Yeah, you know? don't, don't yeah. sit too close to the TV set or something like yeah. that. Right. Don't swim after you eat. All these parental cliches. What is the myth you are happiest to debunk? Um, you know, the one that parents keep coming at me about is uh, sugar uh, and hyperactivity. I guess there's no link. There are like a dozen good studies showing that there's no sugar rushing kids if they eat too much, you know, cupcakes and punch at a party. And Really? Wow. Yeah. And parents are really invested in this. They don't want to admit my kid was the terror of the party. They want to say, oh, well, you gave him too much soda. <laughs> Blame it on the cake. Yeah, exactly. Sugar makes me hyper. I mean, so is it maybe just for adults? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about adults. Uh, you know, there, there's definitely a placebo effect where... Uh, They've done studies where they have parents watch their kids run around, and if the parents think that the kids have had sugar, they'll be like, oh, yeah, he's hyper. And if they think uh, he hasn't had sugar, they'll be like, no, that's normal behavior. So a lot of it is perception. I see. For those who aspire to be on Jeopardy, very quickly, what is the best piece of advice you could give them 
to maybe duplicate your record? Uh, watch the show every night and try to match the buzzer timing of whoever's doing well that night. Uh, and more importantly, mm. you don't want to look like an idiot, so don't wear a sweater and don't mention your cats <laughs> in your story. Did you make that mistake at any point in your five months? Probably the sweater mistake, but I'm, I'm allergic to cats, luckily. Perfect. Well, look, uh, Ken, clearly you're a font of advice and yes. information, so are you ready to provide some of that to our listeners? I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. So our first question comes from Andrea in Barnesville, Ohio, and she asks... How can I stop my father from shouting out the answers to Jeopardy clues when he knows it takes me one half second longer than him to figure them out and that it drives me crazy when he answers them ahead of me? Wow. Did you have that problem yourself? Uh, you know, we don't watch a lot of Jeopardy in uh, our house. My son always wants to watch it, and uh, I hear the music and I hear Trebek's smooth Canadian tones, and I, I get very... Uh, antsy, you know, like I'm back in Nam. <laughs> I have flashbacks. Your thumb starts twitching a little yeah, bit. That's right. I, I, so I can't really relax and spit out answers at the screen the way uh, I used to. Um, I but see. I'm sympathetic. I mean, this is a, I think this is a, Jeopardy is often a family bonding moment in, in this. Uh, so no advice for Andrea and how, you know, how she can uh, stop him from doing this? Well, you know, on a sort of sad note, I mean, given the average age of most Jeopardy viewers, this is a problem that's going to resolve itself Probably oh, one of these no. years. I mean, I mean, pretty soon we're all going to be the old person with decades of Jeopardy watching prowess. There's, there are not a lot of young people watching anymore. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it's mostly college students and older folks. There's a great gulf in the middle of people yeah. with jobs and lives. <laughs> so you're saying Andrea will catch up someday. That's right. And if you know what, if you're not, and if you're not fast enough to answer the Jeopardy questions as quick as you should, um, there's a whole half hour of television just for you, which is called Wheel of Fortune. There you are. Which is often on right before. Oh, so. Dang. That was like some game show negging. That was pretty tough. Burn you, Andrea. <laughs> I think Wheel of Fortune's an honorable game. I'm not putting that down. Okay. Not sure I believe that. Vanna White's going to come knocking at your door. Yeah. <laughs> and she'll flip it around and it'll be a letter. <laughs> Illuminated. Here is, uh, speaking of letters, here's one from Damon. Well, actually, it was an email because it came via Facebook. Damon writes, when someone quotes incorrect data or facts in a business setting, how do you correct them without looking like a jerk? What if the offending party is your boss or other high-ranking official? You know, I got to say the compulsion to correct is always there, especially for, you know, in trivia nerd circles. But, uh, oh, you know, yes. I have learned to just keep that light under a bushel. Not You know, not every dinner party wants you pulling out an iPhone and being like, oh, I got it. I, I have the guy's name right here. You know, that's exactly. it's not as useful as you think it's going to be. But you don't need an iPhone, do you, Ken? I mean, you, you just have <laughs> your eye brain. <laughs> well, I, it used to be very useful to be that guy that knew the name of the, you know, every TV actor and what's the name of that bassist in that band. And now everybody has Google, so it's much less useful to be that nerdy uh, guy true. at the office. Yeah. But also for you, this is yeah. like kind of the wrong question to ask you because I'm sure this is what people want you to do at, at any gathering is to correct them and to know everything. I don't know. I don't, especially not at a work meeting. I don't know if people want to be corrected, yeah. even, even if they can say, I got corrected by the guy from Jeopardy. Yeah. All right. Well, look, here's, uh, we have another question. This comes from Eve in Los Angeles. And this is sort of the flip side of uh, Damon's question. Is it okay to pretend you know a book or author or whatever in the name of moving along the yeah. conversation. To pretend. Yeah, that's a good I feel like there is some social contract where if somebody says, have you seen such and such a movie, you can't say no. You're supposed to be like, yeah, yeah I've seen parts of that, you know, which, yeah, yeah. and everyone understands that that means mm. no, but continue your story. You know? <laughs> Why don't you explain it to me without embarrassing me is what that means. Right. They're like, did you go to college? You're like, yeah, parts of it. <laughs> um. But it's also, the question, by the way, is, is is it okay to do this kind of pretending? So I guess it is, right? I think it's expected because otherwise it kills the conversation. Oh, that reminds me of this movie. Have you seen it? No. And then there's, you know, some dead pause. Yeah. All right. So the proper etiquette is Eve... Uh, uh, just lie. 
And uh, unfortunately, we've got to kill this conversation ourselves because that music means our time is almost up. Ken Jennings, gotcha. thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Ken Jennings, his new book is called Because I Said So, The Truth Behind the Myths, Tales, and Warnings Every Generation Passes Down to Its Kids. And folks, every week we pass down etiquette wisdom to you, our audience. Only some of it is a myth. Only some of it. So if you want your questions answered, send them to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, or via our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week's lesson, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And our teacher is Maria Konakova. She writes the column Literally Psyched for the magazine Scientific American. And her first book comes out January 3rd. It is called, tellingly, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And Maria, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And great to have you. So firstly, why pick Sherlock Holmes, who is a fictional detective, as someone after whom we should model our thinking? Like, what about him is applicable to our very real non-detective world? Well, I think it's important to remember Holmes is actually based on a real person, Dr. Joseph Bell. And Conan Doyle actually observed uh, Dr. Bell and his interactions with patients and how he was able to not only diagnose diseases but tell you so much about the person Mm. just from seeing them. One of the most famous scenes in Sherlock Holmes where Holmes meets Watson and says, I presume you've just come from Afghanistan. Just by looking at him. Exactly. That's actually based on what Joseph Bell did with one of his patients. So Sherlock had some grounding in the real world so we can apply his stuff to the real world. Absolutely. All right. So the book is 260 pages long. Obviously, there's a lot to go into (laughs) here. But maybe you can lay out a few general tips that can get us to start thinking like Holmes and sort of appear superhuman to others. I'm I'm especially interested in this concept of the brain attic Mm -hmm. that you bring up and chapter two of the book? It sounds very creepy to me. <laughs> like there'll be, you know, a picture of Dorian Gray up there or something. Well, there could be. You never know. That's, I don't want to go there. The brain attic is Holmes's metaphor for the human mind. He says to Watson, your brain is actually like an attic. If you're stupid, you're going to treat it like a lumber room. You're just going to take anything mm-hmm. and chuck it in there. Exactly. But if you're smart, you're going to realize that you can only put so much in there and you want to be able to access it. Because the incredibly important point to remember about both the mess of an attic and the way that our memory storage actually works is you really only know what you can remember at any given time. I don't care if you crammed something two years ago. If I'm talking to you and you can't remember it, you don't know it for all intents and purposes and you're not going to use it. So what do we do do to get the important stuff, you know, right at the top of the stairway of the attic, so to speak? You have to be incredibly careful about how you encode it. The way that memory works is the more that we can associate new content with things that we've already stored in our attic, Mm. the better we're going to remember it. So if you continue with the attic metaphor and you think we have rows of boxes, let's label the boxes into different categories, and then let's make sure that when we actually put something in, we're putting it into the right box. And We might even look around and see what else is in the box and is there anything else I can associate with it so that I have more connections. You're going to be able to easily find, say, the names of the planets if you have it in the same box with, you know, say your cat was named Pluto or something like that. I don't know why I chose a cat since 
Pluto is a dog. But, <laughs> but that's interesting. Well, so in a way, that's, it's kind of a, a mnemonic device of picturing things as boxes in a way. Yes, that is a good way of looking at it. Right. And Holmes definitely uses that. And he has an actual file system as well. So things that he knows he should remember but doesn't want to crowd his attic with, he knows that they are in the physical file system and he knows where he can find it. So part of it um, is knowing what not to put in the attic and what to actually put in the physical world. Exactly. Part of it is knowing how best to manage your limited resources. And obviously those are, <laughs> that could probably take a lifetime to accomplish Absolutely. for some of us, but uh, there's more about that in the book. But uh, maybe one more Holmesian tip for thinking like a mastermind? Well, I think something that is incredibly impressive about Sherlock Holmes is his endless curiosity and engagement. He never stops being curious. And he never takes cases, actually, that he thinks are going to be too simple. He wants to solve the interesting crimes, the crimes mm. that seem difficult to solve. That's how he keeps it fresh. And that the reason I think that this is so impressive is so few people do it. It's so incredibly easy once you're as successful as Holmes is to just stop. In academia, you often have older academics who just have a pet theory that made their name, that got them tenure, yep. and they don't really like new up-and-comers or anything that challenges that mindset. You need a fresh perspective. Sure. Actually, speaking of which, one final question. Do you watch the new BBC Sherlock Holmes series starring Benedict Cumberbatch, and does his Holmes I, think like Conan Doyle's Holmes? I do, and he does. Um, Mark Gaddis, who is one of the show's creators and also happens to play the role of Mycroft Holmes, He's also a lifelong Sherlockian, and it's so clear that he knows the stories backwards and forwards. That guy has Sherlock Holmes right at the front of his brain attic. Absolutely. Maria Konnikova, thank you so much for uh, starting to tickle our brains about how to tickle our brains. Thank you. So, Brendan, I'm thinking about what I've got nice and organized and easily accessible in my brain attic. This will be good. It's uh, it's pretty much Beatles lyrics, movie trivia, and, like, my mom's birthday. Mm. And everything else is just kind of in a pile somewhere mm. in the corner. Well, at least you got her birthday in there. In where? I'm sorry? Your brain attic. What What is a brain attic? All right, ladies and gentlemen, just one thing remains to give you for a perfect dinner party, some music to play. Yes, for that we turn to alternative hip-hop duo Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. Their song Thrift Shop is currently number two on Billboard's R&B and hip-hop charts, and their recent album The Heist is one of the most popular in the country. Here they are with some song suggestions. How's it going? This is Macklemore, and Ryan Lewis and I have a brand new album out called The Heist, and we are here today talking about the music that we would play if we were to host a dinner party. Dinner party. Close friends, family, relatives, loved ones. They all come over to your house for dinner. The Martinelli's is flowing, the red wine is plentiful, the eggnog is hot and cold too, depending on how you like it. The big question is, what are you going to play? What are you going to spin? How are they going to respond? The first song I'm picking is The Girl from Ipanema, Stan Getz and Gilberto. Now, you pick a song like this, and you really want to see how people react. And it can get awkward with this song. It's a rumba, it's a slow jazz tune, but you want to just set the mood off right. 
This is the perfect song. This is Ryan Lewis. Now let's say that nobody comes to your dinner party. What do you play then? I would go to Sufjan Stevens' Christmas collection, and on that is a song called Sister Winter, which is just this brutal intersection of the holiday spirit and the realities of a cold, lonely winter. Oh, my friends, I've begun to worry right Where I should be grateful, I should be satisfied Which is not your holiday joy, everything's all good, you're, you know, you're constantly walking around Christmas shopping and always surrounded by these fun, happy holiday songs. No, not now. Nobody came. Nobody showed up. You're dolo at the dinner table. You've cooked an entire meal for nobody to eat. You put on Sister Winter. Alright, so we've covered the grounds. People have warmed up. Your uncle, Larry, hitting on your girlfriend. Your grandfather's asleep. Actually, your grandfather's dead. He's not even at your party. And you want to wake the people up. What do you put on? That's right. The go-to. Magic Dance by David Bowie from the Labyrinth soundtrack. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. Voodoo. You do. Remind me of the babe. I saw my baby. Magic Dance is one of the weirdest songs ever made by anyone that's ever made music. You see who knows this song. You judge them off of that. If they don't know it and they've never seen The Labyrinth, probably not going to invite them next year. You put it on, you get a soul train line going, you see who can really shake it by the Christmas tree. Now let's say the only album you have at the dinner party is ours. Let me tell you what you don't do. Don't play Jimmy Iovine. Don't do it. People don't know how to dance to it. It's going to make it awkward. I'd probably hit him with cowboy boots. Slow, deep bass in case you're already shaking your And also banjos. And what is a better addition to a playlist than a banjo? With the 808s. Dinner Party soundtrack from Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. And that concludes this encore rebroadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Nice. Next week, an all-new episode featuring movie star Colin Firth and food star Bobby Flay. Meanwhile, you should know Jackson Musker is our star assistant producer. Tamika Adams, Brittany Martin, and Davey Kim are our interns. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And thanks also to Charlton Thorpe. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.